Section 7 of His Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. His Family by Ernest Poole. Chapter 19. Edith was radiant at the news. I do hope they're not going to grudge themselves a good long wedding trip, she exclaimed. They're going abroad, said Roger. Oh, splendid. And the wedding. Church or home? Home, said Roger blissfully. And short and simple, not a frill, just the family. Oh, that's so nice, sighed Edith. I was afraid she'd want to drag in her school. School will be out by then, he said. Well, I hope it stays out for the remainder of her days. She can't do both, and she'll soon see. Wait till she has a child of her own. Well, she wants one bad enough. Yes, but can she? Edith asked, with the engrossed expression which came on her pretty florid face whenever she neared such a topic. She spoke with evident awkwardness. That's the trouble. Is it too late? Deborah's thirty-one, you know and she has lived her life so hard. The sooner she gives up her school, the better for her chances. The face of her father clouded. Look here, he said uneasily. I wouldn't go talking to her quite along those lines, my dear. I'm not such an idiot, she replied. She thinks me homely enough as it is, and she's not altogether wrong. Bruce and I were talking it over last night. We want to be closer after this to Deborah and Alan. Bruce said it will do us all good, and for once I think he's right. I have given too much time to my children, and Bruce to his office. I see it now. Not that I regret it, but, well, we're going to blossom out. She struck the same note with Deborah, and so did Bruce. Oh, Deborah, dear, he said, smiling, when he found a chance to see her alone. If you knew how long I've waited for this big fine thing to happen. A. Baird is my best chum in the world. Don't yank him gently away from us now. We'll keep close, eh, all four of us? Very, said Deborah softly. And you mustn't get too solemn, you know. You won't pull too much of the highbrow stuff. Heaven forbid. That's the right idea. We'll have some fine little parties together. You and A. Baird will give us a hand and get us out in the evenings. We need it. God knows we've been getting old. Deborah threw him a glance of affection. Why, Brucie, she said in admiring tones, I knew you had it in you. So has Edith, he sturdily declared. She only needs a little shove. We'll show you two that we're regular fellows. Don't you be all school, and we won't be all home. We'll jump out of our skins and be young again. In pursuance of this gay resolve, Bruce planned frequent parties to theatres and musical shows, and to Edith's consternation, he even began to look about for a teacher from whom he could learn to dance. A. Baird, he told her firmly, isn't going to be the only soubrette in our family. One of the most hilarious of these small celebrations came early in June, when they dined all four together, and went to the summer's opening of The Follies of 1914. The show rather dragged a bit at first, but when Bert Williams took the stage, Bruce's laugh became so contagious that people in seats on every hand turned to look at him and join in his glee. Only one thing happened to mar the evening's pleasure. 
When they came outside the theater, Bruce found in his car something wrong with the engine. He tinkered, but it would not go. Alan hailed a taxi. Why not come with us? asked Deborah. No thanks, said Bruce. I've got this car to look after. Oh, let it wait, urged Alan. It does look a little like rain, put in Edith. Bruce glanced up at the cloudy sky and hesitated a moment. Rain, Piffle, he said good-humouredly. Come on, wifey, stick by me. I won't be long. And he and Edith went back to the car. What a dear he is, said Deborah. Alan put his arm around her, and they looked at each other and smiled. It was only nine days to the wedding. Out of the street's commotion came a sharp cry of warning. It was followed by a shriek and a crash. Alan looked out of the window, and then with a low exclamation he jumped from the taxi and slammed the door. CHAPTER Twenty. Roger had been spending a long, quiet evening at home. He had asked John to dine with him, and they had chatted for a time. Then John had started up to his room, and listening to the slow, shuffling step of the cripple going upstairs, Roger had thought of the quick, eager feet, and the sudden scampers that would be heard as the silent old house renewed its life. Later he had gone to bed. He awakened with a start. The telephone bell was ringing. Nice time to be calling folks out of bed, he grumbled, as he went into the hall. The next moment he heard Deborah's voice. It was clear and sharp, with a note of alarm. Father, it's I. You must come to Edith's apartment at once. Bruce is hurt badly. Come at once. When Roger reached the apartment, it was Deborah who opened the door. Her face had changed. It was drawn and gray. She took him into the living room. Tell me, he said harshly. It was just outside the theater. Bruce and Edith were out in the street and got caught by some idiot of a chauffeur. Bruce threw Edith out of the way, but just as he did it, he himself got struck in the back and went under a wheel. Alan brought him here at once, while I telephoned for a friend of his, a surgeon. They're with Bruce now. Where's Edith? She's trying to quiet the children. They all woke up. Deborah frowned. When he was brought in, she added, Well, breathed Roger, I declare. Dazed and stunned, he sank into a chair. Soon the door opened and Alan came in. He's gone, he said, and Deborah jumped. No, no, I meant the doctor. What does he say? Bruce can't live, said Alan gently. In the tense silence there came a chill. And he knows it, Alan added. He made me tell him. He said he must know for business reasons. He wants to see you both at once, before Edith gets that child asleep. As they entered the room, they saw Bruce on his bed. He was breathing quickly through his narrow, tight-set jaws, and staring up at the ceiling with a straining, fixed intensity. As they entered, he turned his head. His eyes met theirs and lifted up in a hard and terrible manner. I'm not leaving them a dollar, he cried. We'll see to them, boy, said Roger, hoarsely, but Bruce had already turned to Baird. I make you my executor, Alan. Don't need it in writing. There isn't time. He drew a sudden, quivering breath. I have no will, he muttered on. Never made one. Never thought of this. Business life just starting, booming, and I put in every cent. 
there broke from him a low bitter groan made my money settling other men's medals never thought of making this mess of my own but even in mine i could save something still if i could be there if i could be there the sweat broke out on his temples and deborah laid her hand on his head shush she breathed he shut his eyes hard to think of anything any more i can't keep clear he shuddered with pain fix me for them he muttered to baird george and his mother fix me up give me a couple of minutes clear and deborah when you bring him in don't let him know you understand no infernal last good-byes deborah sharply set her teeth no dear no she whispered she followed her father out of the room leaving alan bending over the bed with a hypodermic in his hand and when a few minutes later george came in with his mother they found bruce soothed and quieted he even smiled as he reached up his hand they say i've got to sleep old girl just sleep and sleep it'll do me good so you mustn't stay in the room to-night stay with the kiddies and get them to sleep he was still smiling up at her they say it'll be a long time little wife and i'm so sorry i was to blame if i'd done as you wanted and gone in their taxi remember you said it might rain he turned to george look here my boy i'm counting on you i'll be sick you know not good at all you must stand by your mother george gulped awkwardly sure i will dad his father sharply pressed his hand that's right old fellow i know what you are now good night son good night edith dear he looked at her steadily just for a moment then closed his eyes oh but i'm sleepy he murmured good night and they left him alone with alan bruce looked up with a savage glare look here he snarled between his teeth if you think i'm going to lie here and die you're mistaken i won't i won't let go i'll show you chaps you can be wrong been wrong before haven't you thousands of times why be so damnably sure about me he fell back suddenly limp and weak so damnably sure he panted we're never sure my dear old boy said alan very tenderly again he was bending close over the bed we're not sure yet by any means you're so strong old chap so amazingly strong you've given me hope what are you sticking into my arm but alan kept talking steadily on you've given me hope you'll pull through still but not like this you've got to rest let go and try to go to sleep i'm afraid to came the whisper but soon as again the drug took hold he mumbled in a drowsy tone afraid to go to sleep in the dark say alan get deborah in here will you just for a minute one thing more when she came he did not open his eyes that you deborah where's your hand oh there it is just one more point you you again his mind wandered but with an effort he brought it back you and edith he said in a whisper so 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 different not not like each other at all but you'll stick together eh always always don't let go i mean of my hand no dear no and with her hand holding his she sat for a long time perfectly still then the baby was heard crying and deborah went to the nursery 
Now, Edith, I'll see to the children, she said. Alan says you can go to Bruce if you like. Edith looked up at Deborah quickly, and as quickly turned away. She went in to her husband, and there, hour by hour through the night, while he lay inert with his hand in hers, little by little, she understood. But she asked no question of anyone. At last Bruce stirred a little and began breathing deep and fast. And so death came into the family. Chapter 21 Roger went through the next two days in a kind of stupor. He remembered holding Edith and feeling her shudder as though from a chill. He remembered being stopped in the hall by George, who had dressed himself with care in his first suit with long trousers. "'I just wanted you to remember,' the boy whispered solemnly, "'that I'm nearly sixteen and I'll be here.' He said to stand by her, and I will." The rest of that ghastly time was a blank, punctuated by small quiet orders which Roger obeyed. Thank God Deborah was there, and she was attending to everything. But when at last it was over, and Roger had spent the next day in his office, had found it impossible to work, and so had gone home early, Deborah came to him in his room. "'Now we must have a talk,' she said. Alan has gone through Bruce's affairs, and there are still debts to be settled, it seems. How much they come to, Deborah? About five thousand dollars, she said, and for a moment neither spoke. I wish I could help you out, she went on, but I have nothing saved, and neither has Alan. We've both kept using our money downtown, except just enough for the trip abroad, and we'll need almost all of that to settle for the funeral. I can manage, Roger said, and again there was silence. Edith will have to come here to live, Deborah said presently. Her father's heavy face grew stern. I'd thought of that, he answered, but it will be hard on her, Deborah. I know it will, but I don't see anything else to be done. The deep, quiet voice of her daughter grew sweet with pity as she spoke. At least we can try to make it a little easier for her. You can take her up to the mountains, and I can close her apartment, and of course she won't agree to it unless she knows how matters stand. Deborah waited a little. Don't you think you're the best one to tell her? Yes, said Roger, after a pause. Then suppose we go to her. I'm sleeping up there for the next few nights. They found Edith in her living room. She had sent the nurse out, put the children to bed, and left alone with nothing to do, she had sat facing her first night. Her light, soft hair was disheveled, her pretty features pale and set, but the moment Roger entered, he saw that she had herself in hand. "'Well, father,' she said steadily, "'you'd better tell me about our affairs, my affairs,' she corrected herself. When he had explained, she was silent a moment, and then in a voice harsh, bitter, abrupt, that will be hard on the children, she said. On an impulse he started to take her hand, but she drew a little away from him. The children, my dear, he said huskily, will be taken care of always. Yes. And again she was silent. I've been thinking I'd like to go up to the mountains. Right away, she continued. Just our idea, he told her. Deborah will arrange it at once. That's good of Deborah, she replied, and after another pause, 
But take her home with you, will you? I'd rather not have her here tonight. I think she'd better stay, my dear. All right. In a tone of weariness, Madge Deering called me up tonight. She's coming in town tomorrow, and she means to stay till I go. I'm glad, he said approvingly. Madge had been a widow for years, living out in Morristown with four daughters to bring up. She had determinedly fought her way and had not only regained her hold, but had even grown in strength and breadth since the death of her husband long ago. I'm glad, he said, you and Madge, he paused. Yes, we'll have a good deal in common, Edith finished out his thought. You look tired, Dad. Hadn't you better go home now? She suggested after a moment. Yes, said Roger, rising. Good night, my child. Remember. In the outer hallway he found Deborah with Laura. Laura had been there several times. She was getting Edith's mourning. There's a love of a hat at Thurn's, she said softly, if only we can get her to wear it. It's just her type. And Laura drew an anxious breath. Anything, she added, to escape that hideous heavy crepe. Roger slightly raised his brows. He noticed a faint delicious perfume that irritated him suddenly. But glancing again at his daughter, trim, fresh, and so immaculate, the joy of life barely concealed in her eyes, he stopped and talked and smiled at her, as Deborah was doing, enjoying her beauty and her youth and her love and all her happiness. And though they spoke of her sister, she knew they were thinking of herself, and that it was quite right they should, for it gave them a little relief from their gloom. She was honestly sorry for Edith, but she was sorrier still for Bruce, who she knew had always liked her more than he would have cared to say. She was sorrier for Bruce because, while Edith had lost only her husband, Bruce had lost his very life, and life meant so much to Laura these days, the glowing, coursing, vibrant life of her warm, beautiful body. She was thinking of that as she stood in the hall. In the evening at home in his study, Roger heard a slight knock at the door. He looked up and saw John. "'May I come in, Mr. Gale, for a minute?' "'Yes, my boy,' John hobbled in. "'Only a minute,' his voice was embarrassed. "'Just two or three things I thought of,' he said. "'The first was about your son-in-law. "'You see, I was his stenographer, and while I was in his office, "'this morning helping Dr. Baird, "'I found a good deal I can do there still.' about things no one remembers but me. So I'll stay there a while, if it's all right. Only, he paused, without any pay. See what I mean? Yes, I see, said Roger. And you'd better stay, in that way, if you like. Thanks, said John. Then about his wife and family. You're to take them up to the mountains, I hear. And, well, before this happened, you asked me up this summer. But I guess I'd better not. I don't think you'd be in the way, my boy. I'd rather stay here, if you don't mind. When I'm through in your son-in-law's office, I thought I might go back to yours. I could send you your mail every two or three days. I'd like that, John. It will be a great help. All right, Mr. Gale. John stopped at the door. And Miss Deborah, he ventured. Is she to get married just the same? Oh, yes, I think so. Later on. Good night, sir. And John went out of the room. When would Deborah be married? It came over Roger when he was alone, how his family had shifted. 
its center. Deborah would have come here to live, to love and be happy, a mother perhaps, but now she must find a home of her own. In her place would come Edith with her children. All would center on her in her grief, and for no cause, just a trick of chance, a street accident, and Roger grew bitter and rebelled. Bruce was not the one of the family to die. Bruce, so shrewd and vigorous, so vital, the practical man of affairs. Bruce had been going the pace that kills. Yes, Roger had often thought of it. But that had nothing to do with this. If Bruce had died at fifty, say, as a result of the life he had chosen, the fierce, exhausting city which he had loved as a man will love drink, then, at least, there would have been some sense of fairness in it all if the town had let him alone till his time. But to be knocked down by an automobile, the devilish irony of it, no reason, nothing, just hideous luck. Well, life was like that. As for Edith and her children, he would be glad to have them here. Only it would be different. The house would have to change again. He was sorry, too, for Deborah, no wedding trip as she had planned, no home awaiting her return. So his mind went over his family. But suddenly such thought fell away as trivial and of small account, for these people would still be alive, and Bruce was dead, and Roger was old. So he thought about Bruce and about himself, and all his children grew remote. You will live on in your children's lives. Was there no other immortality? The clock ticked on the mantel, and beside it the thinker brooded down, and Roger looked up unafraid, but grim and gravely wondering. Chapter 22 But there was a rugged, practical side to the character of Roger Gale, and the next morning he was ashamed of the brooding thoughts which had come in the night. He shook them off as morbid, and resolutely set himself to what lay close before him. There was work to be done on Bruce's affairs, and the work was a decided relief. Marge Deering, in the meantime, had offered to go with Edith and the children to the mountains, and see them all well settled there. And a little talk he had with Madge relieved his mind still further. What a recovery she had made from the tragedy of years ago! How alert and wide awake she seemed, if Edith could only grow like that! Soon after their departure, one night when he was dining alone, he had a curious consciousness of the mingled presence of Edith and of Judith, his wife. And this feeling grew so strong that several times he looked about in a startled, questioning manner. All at once his eye was caught by an old mahogany sideboard. It was Edith's. It had been her mother's. Edith, when she married, had wanted something from her old home. Well, now it was back in the family. The rest of Edith's furniture, he learned from Deborah that night, had been stored in the top of the house. Most of it, she told him, Edith will probably want to use in fitting up the children's rooms. With a twinge of foreboding, Roger felt the approaching change in his home. "'When do you plan to be married?' he asked. "'About the end of August.' We couldn't very well till then, without hurting poor Edith a little, you see. You know how she feels about such things. Yes, I guess you're right, he agreed. 
How everything centered round Edith, he thought. To pay the debts which Bruce had left would take all Roger had on hand, and from this time on his expenses, with five growing children here, would be a fast increasing drain. He would have to be careful and husband his strength, a thing he had always hated to do. In the next few weeks he worked hard in his office. He cut down his smoking, stayed home every evening, and went to bed at ten o'clock. He tried to shut Deborah out of his mind. As for Laura, he barely gave her a thought. She dropped in one evening to bid him good-bye, for this summer again she was going abroad. She and her husband, she told him, were to motor through the Balkans and down into Italy. Her father gruffly answered that he hoped she would enjoy herself. It seemed infernally unfair that it should not be Deborah who was sailing the next morning. But when he felt himself growing annoyed, abruptly he put a check on himself. It was Edith he must think of now. But curiously it happened, in this narrowing of his attention, that while he shut out two of his daughters, a mere outsider, edged closer in. Johnny Gear was a great help. He was back in Roger's office, and with the sharp wits he had gained in his eighteen years of fighting for a chance to stay alive, now at Roger's elbow John was watching like a hawk for all the little ways and means of pushing up the business. What a will the lad had to down bodily ills, what vim in the way he tackled each job. His shrewd and cheery companionship was a distraction and relief. John was so funny sometimes. Good morning, Mr. Gale, he said, as Roger came into the office one day. Hello, Johnny, how are you? Roger replied. Fine, thank you. And John went on with his work of opening the morning's mail. But a few minutes later he gave a cackling little laugh. "'What's so funny?' Roger asked. "'Fellows,' was the answer. "'Fellows, human nature. "'Here's a letter from Shifty Sam. "'Who the devil is he? "'Friend of yours?' "'No,' said John. "'He's a con man. "'He works about as mean a graft as any you ever heard of. "'He reads the ads in the papers, see, "'of servant girls who are looking for work. "'He makes a specialty of cooks.' Then he goes to where they live and talks of some nice family that wants a servant right away. He claims to be the butler, and he's dressed to look the part. There ain't a minute to lose, he says. If you want a chance, my girl, come quick. He says chance, like a butler, see? Pack your things, he tells her, and come right along with me. So she packs and hustles off with him, Sam carrying her suitcase. He puts her on a trolley and says, I guess I'll stay on the platform. I've got a bit of a headache, and the air will do me good. So he stays out there with her suitcase, and as soon as the car gets into a crowd, Sam jumps and beats it with her clothes. I see, said Roger dryly. But what's he writing you about? Oh, it ain't me he's writing to. It's you, was John's serene reply. Roger started. What? he asked. Well, said the boy in a cautious tone, vigilantly eyeing his chief, you see, a lot of these fellers like Sam have been in the papers lately. They're being called a crime wave. Well, Sam is up for trial this week, and half the Irish cooks in town are waiting round to testify, and Shifty seems to enjoy himself. His picture's in the papers, see, and he wants all the clippings, so he encloses a five-dollar bill. 
He does, eh? Well, you write to Sam and send his money back to him. There was a little silence. But look here, said John with keen regret. We've had quite a few of these letters this week. Roger wheeled and looked at him. John, he demanded severely, what game have you been up to here? No game at all, was the prompt retort. Just getting a little business. How? Well, there's a club downtown, said John, where a lot of these petty crooks hang out. I used to deliver papers there, and I went round one night this month to drum up business. Yes, sir, Roger looked at him aghast. John, he asked in deep reproach, do you expect this office to feed the vanity of thieves? Where's the vanity, John rejoined, in being called a crime wave, and seeing the sudden tremor of mirth which had appeared on Roger's face. Look here, Mr. Gale, he went eagerly on. When every paper in the town is telling these fellows where they belong, calling em crooks, degenerates, and preaching regular sermons right into their faces, why shouldn't we help em to read the stuff? How do we know it won't do em good? It's church to em, that's what it is, and business for this office. Nine of these guys have sent in their money just in the last week or so. Look out, my boy, said Roger, with slow and solemn emphasis. If you aren't extremely careful, you'll find yourself a millionaire. But wait a minute, Mr. Gale. Not in this office, Roger said. Send em back, every one of em. Understand? Yes, sir, was the meek reply. And with a little sigh of regret, John turned his wits to other kinds and conditions of New Yorkers who might care to see themselves in print. As they worked together day by day, Roger had occasional qualms over leaving John here in the hot town while he himself went up to the mountains. He even thought of writing to Edith that he was planning to bring John to. But no, she wouldn't like it. So he did something else instead. John, he said one morning, I'm going to raise your salary to a hundred dollars a month. Instantly from the lad's bright eyes there shook a look of triumph. Thanks, Mr. Gale, was his hearty response. And in the meantime, Johnny, I want you to take a good, solid month off. All right, sir, thank you, John replied. But I guess I won't be quite a month. I don't feel as if I needed it. The next day at the office he appeared resplendent in a brand new suit of clothes, a summer homespun of light gray set off by a tie of flaming red. There was nothing soft about that boy. No, Johnny knew how to look out for himself. And Roger went up to the farm. End of section 7 Recording by James Carson